It's the Friday News and Notes Edition, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August 23rd. It's show number 38 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. And we do have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll start with player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. Then we'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola discussing Sabermetrics, Ichiro, Dempster versus A-Rod, and some September call-ups. And in our regular Friday matchups analysis, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at Dan Heron against the Royals and Chris Capuano hosting Boston. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? All hail Ichiro, the third player to reach 4,000 hits in pro baseball. Or should that be the fifth? We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, when Ichiro Suzuki notched a first-inning single against R.A. Dickey of Toronto on Wednesday, the media quickly reported that he became one of only three players with, and I quote, 4,000 hits in a professional baseball career. It is a great accomplishment, and I'll talk more about it with Todd Zola in a few minutes on this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. But listen, Ichiro is not one of three players with, and I quote, 4,000 hits in a professional baseball career. He's one of five, as far as we know. Ichiro's 4,000 hits, of course, include almost 1,300 hits in Japanese baseball. And while experts quibble over the talent level there, it's certainly less than the major leagues. So, it's a minor league. And when we count minor league stats in hit totals, as we apparently are with Ichiro, it turns out we have at least a couple more members of the 4,000 hit club. You might even have heard of them. Henry Aaron and Stan Musial. Aaron had 3,771 big league hits, good for third overall in big league history as it is. But Aaron also played in the minor leagues, breaking the color line in the Sally League in 1953 and earning MVP honors there with 208 hits in his one season. He had 324 hits overall playing in the minors. Add those to his 3771 big league knocks, And Hank Aaron's total in, and I quote, professional baseball is 4,095 hits. And let's not forget, Henry Aaron also famously played for a short time in the Negro Leagues, starting his pro career as a shortstop for the Indianapolis Clowns. And since many of those Negro League stats have vanished, well, who knows? Musial, meanwhile, is fourth in big league hits at 3,630. But he also had minor league professional hits, 371 of them, in fact, raising his overall professional baseball total to 4,001. 
None of this is to downplay the tremendous achievement of Ichiro Suzuki in reaching 4,000 professional hits. If anything, adding the names Aaron and Musial to the club Ichiro has just joined is rather more reason for all of us to celebrate. Now let's move on to our hit leaders. On deck we have Jock Thompson with the American League News Report and leading off it's the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. It's good to be here. Nick, noticing a bit of trouble with your audio, I just mentioned that so that people listening at home on their computers or MP3 players will know it's not your player. There's something going on with the uh, technical end here. We apologize for that. Uh, Nick, our starting pitching buyer's guide columnist, Stephen Nickrand, looked at uh, skill surgers after the All-Star break, and by skill surgers he means starting pitchers who have demonstrated real good improvement in their skills. A lot of interesting names here. We're going to look at a couple of them, starting with Pittsburgh starter uh, Jarrett Cole. This guy's really onto something. Since the all break, his dominance has jumped from 4.1 to 7.7. He's striking out a bunch more guys. His, uh, his BPV is up to 108 since the 1st of July. Uh, XCRE of 3.20. So here's a guy with really got a lot of upside at this point, especially in a keeper league. But uh, his skills have really been developing uh, in the short time he's been in the majors. And this is the kind of guy I like looking at for late season trading, if your league hasn't already stopped trading, because the poorish first half makes his overall stats for the year look fairly pedestrian. And especially with these young players, a really solid second half uh, for keeper league owners can really um, portend a solid coming up year. I think who really start developing in the second half and can be uh, on the verge of a breakout as we as they move into uh, into next season. And Garrett Cole, uh, Garrett Cole, certainly looks like one of those guys. He does. Uh, another pitcher that made the list. This is a guy who broke out about this time last year, a little earlier maybe. Chris Medlin of Atlanta suffered through a really poor first half to the point where he was removed from the rotation. A lot of fantasy owners were dropping him outright. But Chris Medlin looks like a guy that you should be looking at. You definitely should. I mean, the, and in fact, he's he's kind of struggled uh, even with his with his overall ERA since the since the first of July, a five point oh seven ERA. But the skills have actually been better uh, since July first. His his DOM is up a bit. His control is better. His uh, his uh, fly ball rate is down. So here's a guy who's look, getting to the point where he looks like he could be ready to break out for the end of the season. Uh, and uh, it looks like there could be some holes. In the, there have been talk about putting Medlin back in the bullpen. Uh, then that looks like there would be some holes in that Atlanta rotation. So he looks like a pretty good bet to me for the next uh, the next month and a half. His overall skills picture doesn't look great, but it also doesn't look terrible. And the, the gains that he's making in the second half, if the skills gains get translated into production gains, somebody could really have themselves a, a really nice little get for the stretch run. Yeah, they could indeed. I mean, his... his, his his expected earned run average in the second half is 3.59. So it's well under that 5.07 that he's put up since the 1st of July. Uh, and if you look at uh, what happened was he went through a rough stretch and had some had some tough games and then seemingly a sort of sound for the last uh, the last few games and pitched pitched pretty well. So Osmedlin is a guy to look at. Uh, it's it's uh, really unclear at this point, I think, exactly what his role is going to be. But my guess is he winds up starting again uh, and could do very, very well down the stretch. A lot of uh, owners might look at his 2012 results and say, gosh, he's nowhere near that good. But in 2012, he pitched in 62 games, 50 of them as a reliever. And, of course, we know that, generally speaking, when you're pitching in relief, 
you should have slightly higher skills. You should be walking fewer guys because you don't have to use as many pitches. You can rely on one or two pitches for your inning or four or five outs that you're in there to get. And when you're a starter, the demands are higher. So perhaps this is a bit of growing pains. Uh, Chris Medlin looks good for 2014 as well. Yeah, I think he very definitely does. I mean, keep in mind, uh, here's a guy who's only 27 years old, just coming into his prime. Uh, certainly does look good, I think, going forward as well. The third name I'd like to talk about on Stephen Nickran's post-All-Star Skill Surgers list is Milwaukee starter Willie Peralta, and this is a guy who's often under the radar. His dominance was not very strong, uh, uh, only striking out five guys per nine innings. Uh, 4.68 expected earned run average before the break. So you know, a, a guy that really had a fairly pedestrian uh, start to the season and I think was probably dropped in a lot of leagues, had been picked up as a, uh, as a potential breakout candidate, uh, undoubtedly got dropped. If you start to look at what he's done in the second half, 3.02 ERA, 3.44 XERA. His dominance is up. He's now striking out 7.5 guys per nine innings in the second half. Uh, his command is up because his control is a little bit better. Uh, here is a guy that's uh, it's got a 56% ground ball rate. So he's had a consistently high ground ball rate. Looks like a real potential breakout candidate for, for next season. Willie Peralta, definitely a guy to watch. And uh, we have one batter we'd like to talk about from the Batting Buyer's Guide. We had six slumping sluggers uh, displaying good skills. And uh, the only National League guy who made that list was Marlon Byrd. And in the aftermath of that article coming out, of course, so Marlon Byrd went on a bit of a home run tear. You know, if you look at what Marlon Byrd has done this year, we're looking at 21 home runs, a career high at this point. And we've still got, got uh, six weeks left. So... Uh, 21 home runs, 70 RBIs, uh, career highs so far in, in in home runs, and as high in RBIs, 89. So really having quite a season. But you were right in looking at what he's done. His home run per fly rate for this season is the highest it's been in his career. I mean, you go back to 2002, and you don't have an 18% home run per fly rate out of Marlon Byrd. Uh, much more likely to be 9%, 9%, 11%, 8%, 9%. 9%. So all you, you have to think that over the short term, that home run rate is likely to come down, and uh, we may not see him continue spotting balls out of the park uh, over the rest of the season. I suppose there's always the possibility that a a hitter can just change his approach or figure something out. Uh, Marlon Bird's kind of long in the tooth to do that, perhaps some people might say. But here's the caution that I thought about Marlon Bird when I wrote this batting buyer's guide for BaseballHQ.com last week. It's a two-pronged thing. You mentioned the home run per fly ball rate, much higher than it ever has been, and doubly tough in City Field, I might add, where it was 4% for him last year. But not only that, he's also hitting more fly balls than ever. He's up around 40 or 41% fly ball rate, and that's a good 10 points higher than his career norms. So not only is he hitting more fly balls, but more of them are flying out of the park. It's a combination that doesn't seem sustainable, although we have to give him credit with 21 home runs so far this year, he's doing something right. Yeah, he is doing something right. You know, it's, it's a it's a level he's found before in terms of that fly ball rate, but not been able to maintain it consistently. A 40% fly ball rate, uh, let's see, 40% fly ball rate back in 2005, a 41% fly ball rate in 2009, but generally much closer to 25%, 28%, uh, somewhere in that area. So, he, he's found a groove and been in it, but, but I really worry about his ability to sustain that over 
uh, any lengthy period of time. Right, and we sh- we should caution that it's entirely possible that any player can get way out of character in his results over a 10 or 14 or 17 game stretch or even from now to the end of the season. There's any number of ways that a player can surprise, but the way to bet is that it's not going to continue because the body of work suggests that it won't. Right, very definitely. All right, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us, and we'll catch up with you again next week. All right, thanks, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and Jock Thompson. Jocko, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD, good to be here. Let's start with Boston. The big news, Xander Bogart's top prospect was called up this week. Matt Dodge in uh, BaseballHQ.com playing time and Chris Maloney in the Daily Call-Up section both covered this news. Uh, the Daily Call-Up's report rated Xander Bogart's a 9C prospect, the 9 meaning he's potentially an all-star caliber player, and the C meaning that he has about a 50% chance of reaching that ceiling. So this is a terrific young player. But those are longer-term considerations, Jock. Most fantasy owners need to know what are Bogart's chances of playing and what are his chances of contributing if he does. Bogart's definitely a premium guy, but you're right. Uh, shorter term, this is a tougher call. The, uh, the call-up looks to me like a, an injury uh, depth down the stretch hedge by Boston and a little bit of fallout from the PV Iglesias trade now that they don't have Iglesias in the infield. Um, Bogarts isn't yet 21, and like you said, he's a, he's a terrific uh, hitter all round. He hits for power and average. Um, chances are he's going to take some left-handed at-bats away from Stephen Drew at shortstop. He may get some at-bats from, from Middlebrook at third, although Middlebrook is red hot now, so I don't expect Bogarts to unseat him. Um, it really depends on how Bogarts produces from the get-go. That's really what's going to determine whether he plays or not. Uh, I expect him to be coming off the bench most of the time. And what's he going to do with uh, any offensive opportunities that he has? He's yeah, well, I mean, other than stolen bases, he pretty much does everything. His his minor league numbers was were terrific. Um, he had 15 homers this year in, uh, in 444 at-bats. He wasn't playing in uh, particularly offensive leagues at AAA or AA. And the thing that you got to remember is this guy hasn't even turned 21 yet, so there's all kinds of long-term potential. The only question is what he does in the – in the short term. Felix Hernandez entered this season, Jock, with some concerns about his diminishing fastball velocity, but he's back in Cy Young contention again. A 262 ERA this year, a 110 whip, excellent results, and even 12 wins on a very poor Mariner squad again. Dave Adler looked at Felix Hernandez in Facts and Flukes at BaseballHQ.com. What do you think of Felix's performance and especially his outlook? You and I talked about this at the beginning of the season, and, and I'm a longtime Felix owner, and I, I'm concerned about his velocity loss, and I was at the beginning of the season. I think we almost agreed that the fade was going to be real slow and that he was still uh, obviously worthwhile owning these, this, these next few years. His velocity is down again from 92.4 to 91.3. That's average fastball uh, for the year. But I'm looking at these numbers, and I'm starting to rethink. Uh, this guy really knows how to pitch, clearly. And in spite of a, uh, of a, of a huge career already at uh, age 27, I mean, his, his innings pitched and his pitch counter are through the roof at such a young age. I think this spade is even going to go slower than I thought. I mean, his, his numbers are, are near career across the board. His expected ERA is, uh, is at an all-time high. His... Uh, 
His ERA itself is 2.47. He's been magnificent this year. Not only that, but his command ratio, strikeouts to walks, is higher than it's ever been. It's up around 4.8. That's 4.8 strikeouts for every walk, partly because his strikeouts are up 9.2 a dom rate, strikeouts per nine innings, but also because his walks are are down 1.9 walks per nine innings for his walk rate control ratio and that is the uh, continuation of a fairly long trend yeah the metrics are really just staggering i mean a 4.8 command and and particularly with falling velocity i don't know how he's doing it but uh, he's him and he and max scherzer are my two choices for american league cy young this year yeah they're both pitching well i imagine even though felix hernandez kind of broke the ice on the voters for the Cy Young Award realizing there's more to it than wins. In fact, the wins shouldn't really be counted. I think if uh, Max Scherzer gets past the 20 win mark, especially if he gets up around 22 or 23, as he very well might, that's going to be awful tough for Felix Hernandez. But he is having a great year. Something we mentioned uh, earlier this season as well, talking about Felix Hernandez, is that uh, he has very few playoff innings. And that may have extended his career. And I'm thinking of this for two reasons, Jock. That especially if a team goes all the way to the World Series or to the uh, League Championship Series, that's like a month less recovery time for all the pitchers in addition to all the extra innings they're throwing. So by missing the playoffs every year, the Mariners may be extending Felix Hernandez's career. And I'm wondering, do you think maybe we should start looking and counting playoff innings in pitcher workload consideration? Yeah, I think that's a real good point, PD, particularly for these teams that are perennially in the in the postseason. I guess that's one good thing about being a Mariner for Felix. Uh, that That's not a problem he has to deal with. In Houston, Jock, reserve catcher, sometimes DH Carlos Corporan, was put on the DL with concussion symptoms, and they've called up another prospect, Max Stassi. Uh, he got covered in daily call-ups at BaseballHQ.com by Colby Garropy, who gave him an 8C rating, a solid regular and uh, there was also, I think, a playing time piece that you wrote. Stasi was a prospect, and he wasn't. Now he's back somewhat. Should fantasy players be looking at Max Stasi down the stretch? Stasi's one of these guys who was real hot in uh, in Double A over the past couple of months. He actually, uh, I think, he hit uh, 16 homers and about 170 at bats. He's the kind of guy that makes me think that Houston is doing a real good job picking up players who who could contribute longer term. He, he's not a star, and he has some warts. He he doesn't make a real good contact, and, and his patience could stand some improving. But he's a good defender, and he has power. Now, he immediately picked up two hits in his major league debut on uh, – on Tuesday night, and then Wednesday, he was hit by the he was hit by a pitch in the nose. So we have to wait and, and see what his status is here and how he rebounds from it. Interesting longer term guy. Um, short term, obviously, you don't know how these guys are going to do. But I love the way Houston is picking up talent, and 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 I really like their their willingness to audition rookies. So if he can bounce back from uh, being hit in the face with a ball, um, yeah, he he could get hot down these the stretch these last five weeks. And staying in the West, uh, Alexei Ogando goes back to the DL the third time this season. The Rangers are really having trouble with that number five spot in their pitching rotation, except that Martin Perez has finally stepped up for Texas. He was a topic in your American League West Divisional Outlook column and in Matt Gelfand's Facts and Flukes column at BaseballHQ.com. What about Martin Perez for these last four or five starts? Perez is one of those cautionary tales. He's a, he's a post-type guy who a lot of fantasy owners were, were beginning to sour on 
because he struggled at the higher levels. He was struggling at double A AA and triple A for the last couple of years. But the thing you got to remember with him, he's awfully young for these levels. He's still just 22 years old. Now, with Texas, he's getting a lot of ground balls. The real key with him, though, is his vastly improved control. He's walking less than three batters per nine innings. He doesn't have a lot of strikeouts yet, and his expected ERA is about half a run higher than his real ERA. But he's benefiting from being on a good defensive team. He's improved enough um, that he's keeping them in the game. You can't argue with the results, and I think he's going to be pretty good down the stretch. He's really helped Texas over these last two months. Jock, we talked about the Toronto outfield uh, earlier this season with respect to Rajai Davis picking up playing time because uh, Emilio Bonifacio got traded and Colby Rasmus got hurt. Now Jose Bautista has joined Rasmus on the DL. He has a bruised hip bone, so basically the entire Toronto starting outfield this year, Bautista, Rasmus, and Melky Cabrera, all hurt. In our playing time space, Matt Dodge again talked about Anthony Ghosts, Kevin Pillar, who just got called up, and now Moises Sierra has been called up as well as names who could pick up playing time in the Toronto outfield. What's the story in the Toronto outfield? Right now, this looks like a real hodgepodge. There's nobody you can really recommend. If uh, if you're going to take a flyer on speed, obviously you're going to want Anthony Ghosts. Um, Pilar, as, as we discussed last week, uh, didn't look particularly promising, his, num- his minor league numbers and metrics, and he hasn't done anything. I think he's picked up one hit in 24 at-bats or something like that. Sierra was interesting at the end of last year. He came up and flashed a little power, even though he didn't have a lot of patience. But he's completely regressed across the board. Um, I'm looking at his numbers right now. Um, he hit 11 home runs in 385 at-bats at AAA, and he struck out 107 times while walking only 17 times. So I'm not real optimistic that fantasy owners are going to find gold uh, in, in that outfield. Anything can happen in these last six weeks, but uh, not a lot of talent there. Probably the most talent is Rajai Davis, but he's a free agent after this year, Jock, and Toronto looks really unlikely to re-sign him, and that doesn't seem to augur well for his playing time because they are going to want to look at Sierra and Pilar and Ghost and maybe the usher in Section 103 trying to find somebody who can play outfield and who has any kind of promise or potential for down the road. And uh, in a situation similar to what's going on in Toronto, a team playing out the string and coping with all kinds of injuries, the L.A. uh, Angels of Anaheim, Mike Trout, maybe the best player in the league, has missed the entire Cleveland series with a hamstring problem. There's some question with how much or if he's going to play on the weekend. You predicted this was going to happen in a playing time article. Is it going to go on longer with Mike Trout, or is it just a precaution? Yeah, I watched when he did it, and he wasn't having any trouble coming to the dugout after uh, trying to beat out a ground ball to the infield. This is a tight hamstring. I, I was pretty sure the Angels were going to rest him for a game or two. I didn't didn't think he'd be out the entire Cleveland series. I think this is a precaution. I think he'll be back this weekend. Obviously, there's no reason for the Angels to risk any kind of a major uh, uh, injury here. Um, it's really put the Angel outfield uh, up uh, up for grabs, though, and it really shows you how bad this team is. I think they scored uh, uh, four runs in the series with Cleveland. Um, you're missing Trout. You're missing Pujols. You're not going to have a lot of offense. I was going to ask you, the uh, Angels outfield playing time looks a little weird. Peter Borjos is back. They've got uh, Calhoun, who seems to have cooled off a little bit. You've got uh, J.B. Shuck out there as well. Jock, what uh, possibilities are there for us in the Angels' outfield? Well, I think one of the, one of the reasons they're also sitting trout is they do want to audition some people. They're really trying to rebuild Borges' value coming back after a lost year. 
and he's not cooperating. He was 0 for 20 uh, in his first 20 at-bats coming back from the DL before picking up a couple of hits in the final Cleveland game. Uh, Cole Calhoun has cooled down since his hot start. Surprisingly, the one consistent uh, player apart from Trout that they've had in the outfield all year has been J.B. Shuck, who has parlayed his contact into a 291 batting average. He's been up around 290, 300 all year. Um, the only really thing, real thing he offers is, is contact, but uh, so far his hit rate has cooperated. Um, if you're looking for batting average down the stretch, there's a guy I would pick up right now. Jock, thanks very much. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. See you next week. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, also writes several columns at the site, and he's our American League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our regular weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy. I help run things at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 1st through 3rd in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2014's impact rookies, including the annual Rising Stars All-Star Game. Visit www.firstpitchforums.com to get the skinny and to register. Sign up by August 31st to get a 40% discount on the registration fee. It's like getting Miguel Cabrera in the seventh round. First Pitch Arizona, come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes Edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Dr. HQ Rick Wilton has part one of a look at rotator cuff injuries. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column looks at tweaking the delicate balance about changes to the Mayberry Method evaluation system. And Doug Dennis's Bullpen Buyer's Guide column takes a first look at 2014 starting in the American League East. That's a free column at the site at BaseballHQ.com. Plus, we'll have all our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, other buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, pitcher matchups, and so much more. Time now for our regular Friday Talk with Todd. And it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, MastersBall.com, KFFL.com, and ESPN.com in the insider section of their fantasy baseball coverage. Todd, welcome back to the show. Really great to be back, Patrick. You just spent uh, last weekend at a very interesting event. I understand the uh, Sabre Seminar at Boston University. What was going on? Well, I, uh, as I walked in on Saturday morning, I was surprised to see none other than uh, Brent Hershey and Ray Murphy standing in the lobby of, uh, of the Metcalf Center at BU. It was called Sabre Seminar. It's a, it's a kind of a casual event. It's not, it's not thrown by, the, by Sabre. Uh, but there's a lot of Sabre people there. Uh, it's a blend of, of Sabre metrics and scouting and, and media and that sort of thing. Uh, the, the, the talks were we had a Sabre bent, but we also had a, you know, a 45-minute Q&A with, with John Farrell. We had a, a Q&A with, with, with an ESPN uh, media. It actually wasn't ESPN. It was a Boston Herald, a Boston Globe. Uh, beat writer and a couple of you know baseball prospectus and fan graphs, so kind of a nice contrast. And 
There was some talks given by Tom Tippett, someone from the sabermetric community that's in the front office. A couple other front office folks from the sabermetric community not only talked about their job, but how you know one in the audience may next year be talking about their job to get it to break into the, the business, that sort of thing. It was more much more casual than you might think of a, of a saber conference itself. But like I said, yet the uh, presentations all, you know, they were all you know heavily numbered and a lot of a lot of R squareds and regressions and coefficients were talked about. Anything with uh, immediate fantasy implications? Immediate, not necessarily. Some perhaps long term, maybe some uh, some fine tuning of projections. Uh, a lot of it might be more useful in figuring out what has happened, because uh, as you know, the, the, the data that's coming up, a lot of it, HFX data and that sort of thing, defensive data, might be better served to explain an event that's already occurred, which helps us predict what could go on in the future. So in that, from that angle, sure, there's some stuff going on. There's some stuff that could be applicable to the daily game. That was perhaps the talk that caught my eye the most. Even though every broadcast tells you a certain hitter's you know, three for 14 against a pitcher. Therefore, he's, uh, you know, not going to be in the lineup that day because the manager would rather put the guy that's, you know, five for 10. And we know that that data is not predictive. Vince Gennaro of Sabre is grouping pitchers together in like style and like form and like characteristics. So whereas the sample against a certain pitcher is small and spread out over a long period of time, if you're able to classify pitchers into like groups, you get a, a bigger sample over a shorter period of time. So you could say that a certain hitter is, I don't know, 48 for, you know, 122 against Class A pitchers, and the guy on the mound's a Class A pitcher, and it might help predict, you know, pinch hitting and, and platoons and that sort of thing. But in our game, it could, it, you know, for the daily game or for, if you have daily moves, not just the daily games. So there is, you know, there could be some uh, some application in that regard. Now, he, he's still classifying the pitchers, trying to figure out the best manner to classify the pitchers. So it's a work in progress. Just to clarify, when you say a Class A pitcher, you don't mean he's playing in Class A. You mean they're going to stratify pitchers or compartmentalize them as high strikeout, high ground ball, left-handed uh, low strikeout, high ground right. ball, right hand, and so on, so that they can more effectively aggregate performance against a particular type of pitcher. Could they do the same thing for hitters? I suppose. Uh, I, yeah, I would think that. Sure, you could. I what well, this was, you know, that this wasn't the angle, but sure, uh, you could probably figure out hitters that you know like the ball down, better hitting off speed, you know, that sort of thing. I would think that you could sort of do the same thing, although each pitcher faces more hitters. There might already be enough inherent data that you may not have to, have to classify the pitters. But, sure, why not? Ichiro Suzuki of the Yankees reached 4,000 hits earlier this week. Uh, is this a big deal? I, I, You know what? I, Not to me, but I respect that some people are more into that sort of thing than I am. Uh, so, you know, if, if they're getting, if they're happy that, you know, that Ichiro's got 4,000 hits, you know, good for them. I'm not into the numbers as much as some people. I'm not into the, the stats, the Hall of Fame, the MVPs, all that sort of thing. I, I really enjoy watching the game as it's occurring. Uh, I'd rather go back and, and Google the, the, the YouTube video of Ichiro's six minutes worth of throwing guys out at third and home 
Uh, that's the sort of you know that I, that's the sort of thing that I like, which kind of bridges in uh, to to sort of parallel to show how complete a player Ichiro is. There was a stat put out by John Dewan, who puts a stat out every day on Twitter. He uh, is first overall in the history of the game as far as outfielders go of saving runs, which is kind of interesting because we talk about the 4,000 hits and some of those are in Japan. This stat is, is, you know, U.S. ball, you know, MLB only. He's the number one outfielder of all time if you believe in the defensive, you know, metric saving runs, which is kind of cool. I mean, I'm sure his arm has a, a little something to do with that. It, it is interesting, and of course, uh, as defensive metrics evolve, there's a possibility down the road that they could find their way into various fantasy baseball scoring formats. So stuff like that will, I think, maybe become more interesting. And in the meantime, maybe if you can see it in the minor leagues at the higher levels that a guy is a really plus defensive player, it augurs well for his chance to reach the majors and to stick while he finds his ability to hit a little bit. You know, your glove gets you there, your bat keeps you there. Isn't that, isn't that what they say? There's a reason why, you know, Brian Dozier is still playing and, and Josh Rutledge is in the minors. Yeah, and that's an excellent example. I have another question about Ichiro for you, Todd, and that is, given the amount of success he's had at the major league level with a very unorthodox or, or non-standard approach to hitting, the, the uh, deliberate sort of running towards first base while he's hitting and that willingness to chop it out into left field if that's all there is he's getting 250 260 hits a, a season and very few walks i should say in the especially in the early part of his career why haven't more uh, north american players we'll call them ha- adopted that approach if they're not home run type hitters i think some of it's culture i think the culture of the the, the game in japan um lends itself more to you know being respected for the type of player that ichiro was the uh Man, in his prime, you know, we talk about, you know, hit him where they ain't, we Willie Keeler. He may have been the only guy that I actually believe could do that. I mean, it's, sometimes I thought he was up there with a tennis racket, you know, serving the ball out into left field uh, during, you know, during the heyday in, in Seattle. But I think, you know, you know, some of the guys in, in, in the in the poor, you know, third world countries trying to trying to make it here, I think I think they think home runs is what 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 gets them to the major leagues. I think they think that that's what uh, what's necessary for them to make it to the to the big leagues. So I think that's what they try and overswing and, and and play out of their out of their realm. Even though, like you said, even though they are maybe slighter uh, slighter build and that sort of thing, their their defense is nice, but uh, that might not get them to the major leagues. I think it's probably cultural, and maybe there will be a switch. And plus, I just think that the the, the skill. That you know, it's why don't people throw more knucklers? I, cause it's really hard to do. Yeah. I think it's really hard because uh, we've seen some some slight you know Japanese players that have come over the past couple of years that are mini Ichiro or little Ichiro lights that just can't do what he does. They don't have the the hand eye coordination, the ability to to hit the ball to make the contact that he does. I think part of it is culture, and part of it is just really hard to do. Yeah, you know, but it seems like it can't be as hard to do as to hit a ball over a fence when you just lack the the physical strength. That probably brings it back to the mentality and and what they believe the major league, you know, ownership and brass wants. I think they believe they want the guy to hit the ball over the fence. You know, I look at a guy, you know, I look at a guy like Manny Machado who, you know, sort of in between. He looks like he could become a, you know, a line drive gap hitter, not so much like Ichiro, but you know, not necessarily the power hitter, but you know what's his what's his career arc going to be? Is he going to mature into a power hitter? He's bigger than Ichiro, so he probably yeah. will. 
But that, you know, that sort of that sort of thing. You know, Jose Iglesias, is he going to, you know, if he were to adapt more of the Ichiro style, maybe he would be able to sustain this uh, this batting average on balls in play that everybody says is going to fall. I was just looking at Ichiro's career statistics, and he we forget that he didn't get to join Major League Baseball until he was 27 years old. And we know that he was very successful in Japanese baseball, and we know Japanese baseball is somewhere between AAA, they say, and, and the major leagues as far as the, the talent level. But is there any doubt that had Ichiro had the opportunity to play in the majors from age 20 or 21, as he did over there, he could easily be chasing Pete Rose right now? Yep, and I, I wish I could credit who said this. It may have, it may have even been a comedian because I follow some comedians on Twitter. But I thought it very interesting that the, the comment was the first person that breaks Pete Rose's hit record for real is is going to permanently seal Pete Rose's ticket out of the Hall of Fame. And I, you know, I think it was. I think it was Roy Wood Jr., the comedian, mm-hmm. that that wrote that on his Twitter. Twitter. I thought that was sort of interesting. You know that that you know right now there's still a thread of hope because how can you leave the all-time hit leader out of the Hall of Fame? But if someone were to make him the second leader, you know who cares about second place? Right. Uh, so that that's an interesting thought. But sure, I mean Ichiro, you know we hear the legend too of, of of you know batting practice and you know he can hit a homer if he wants and let's get him in a home run derby. But I, I met reference it before back you know back when he was battling Jason Giambi for MVP. Some of those years, and that was before we really got into the the sabermetric OBP, you know, sort of way of analyzing players. But I just saw him get on first base and just saw him wreck havoc on the base pass, get in the pitcher's head, and just just really, really frustrate the opposing team. And you really can't quantify that necessarily. Came with the Giambi's OBP that year, but uh, you know, I I loved watching Ichiro play back in the day. Another thing we forget, you mentioned that he was uh, such a, a effective player on the base paths, not only stealing bases, which he was actually quite good at, several seasons over 40 and his rookie year over 50, and but also first to third, first to home on, a, on an extra base hit, all those kind of things. Uh, you know, at Baseball HQ, we value players every at the end of every year according to our systems, and except for the last couple of years, Ichiro Suzuki has never not been a mid-$20 player and has frequently been a high 30s, low 40s player in dollars. Right. Now, you, you referenced it a little bit before by saying doesn't walk very much. You know, when he was hitting over 300 all those years at the top of a lineup, getting 700 plate appearances, all those at-bats made that batting average just even that much more oh, useful. Yeah. So that's where he would get a lot of his value. And even now... Where we hope he's only hitting 270. Well, we've talked about it before. You know, the, the, the mean average is 20 points lower. So that 270 is, from a fantasy impact, the same as a 285 or 290 before, which wasn't, you know, pretty, pretty good. So he's still, he's not getting as many at-bats because he's hitting down in the order, and he's even sitting against some tough lefties now. But still, uh, you know, the stolen bases and just enough power that keeps him from above the Juan Pierre line. Uh, you know, he's still a useful player, but that he isn't playing as much anymore, uh, which, you know, which hurts his value a bit. Todd, moving on to a different topic, uh, just the other day, Jason Hayward was hit square in the face by a Jonathan Knees fastball, and he's now out with a broken jaw, almost certainly going to miss the rest of the regular season. We don't know for sure about the playoffs, assuming Atlanta goes any distance in them. This is a bad thing that has happened, and how likely do you think it is 
that the major leagues are going to press forward trying to protect batters with more efficient headgear, helmets, that kind of thing? I think it's going to have to start younger. I think it's going to have to start either in youth baseball or college or the minors just because I don't think you can just plunk a helmet on a major leaguer and have them comfortable and accept it. I think it's going to be a generational thing that's going to have to start with it, play with it, get used to it, and just be part of them. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just one of those weird things. You don't want to – one is too many times. The fact that it happened once is too many times. But on the other hand, it, it's only happened once. You know, funny – well, you could say that, you know, Jay Happ and, and, and Alex Cobb may disagree on the other end of it. But um, I, the, the, the change to the game, and could, could it actually be more dangerous if, 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 if pitchers and, and hitters – change their headgear and change their the way they go about it i don't know um i don't think we're going to see a rash of a call of of of, of, of you know a change in in equipment at this point i mean we've seen it for base coaches that have gotten yeah. hit and and at one point even and even fatally unfortunately yeah. i don't know i think it's going to have to start at youth level and and work its way up legion ball that sort of thing and have the players grow into it as opposed to just you know, next year, here you go. You got to wear this uh, battle armor. You got to wear this hockey mask to the plate. Well, speaking of hockey masks, I, I, living up here in Canada, of course, I, I remember well the uh, debates that occurred when they started making helmets mandatory. Now they've made visors mandatory, and so forth. And they grandfather guys out who who uh, don't want to participate. But at the time they made helmets mandatory, there was a lot of grumbling amongst uh, hockey observers saying these guys don't want to wear helmets. But in in retrospect, it turned out when they went and asked a bunch of guys, they said, yeah, I wanted to wear the helmet, but I didn't want to be the first. I didn't want to be the only guy or one of two or three guys on my team who wore a helmet because, you know, of what it says about me as a man on the ice and all of this other nonsense. And by making it mandatory, the league gave the players permission to do what they all wanted to do anyway. Right. Now, I remember that a little bit, too, that the concern at the beginning was it may have an inverse effect because with a helmet, the you may get a little bit more cavalier with the stick and the high sticking and that sort of thing. And I think it did a little bit at the beginning, but yes, it did that yeah. certainly cur- curtailed over the years. I don't know if it, I, I don't know if it, if it changes the game as much. Um, I mean, it sounds so silly. Uh, you know, how can putting a helmet on change the game, but you're thinking about so much stuff as it is. And you really want to be focused on the ball and the pitcher, you know, having the helmet there. I don't know. I, I, these guys are such creatures of habit. Maybe you're right that if, uh, that if it's one for all, for one, everybody's back on the same playing field and there'll be a small time of getting used to it before you know it again. You know, it's baseball as we see it today. And you did mention the the effect on the game of having the additional protection. There was some complaining when players like Bonds especially started coming up looking like RoboCop up there at the plate with uh, like head-to-foot body armor and they – and, of course, he could stand there with his toes touching the plate practically and, and had such tremendous plate coverage that there was nothing you could do because if you hit him, he just took his walk and, and was happy and you couldn't hurt him that way and not that hurting a guy intentionally should be uh, tolerated either. And we'll talk about that in a second as well. But ba- baseball made them take off some of the body armor because the extra protection does make guys more cavalier. That's the worry about about potentially dangerous behavior. Um, 
You mentioned uh, Jay Happ and Alex Cobb. Also earlier this week, Mark Burley of the Jays took a Robinson Cano line drive square in the chest. He barely got his glove on it, and he said had it been a foot higher, it would have hit him in the face and maybe killed him because, you know, that's 60 feet away and that ball's really moving at that point. Do you think that there's any chance, any better chance that they protect pitchers with headgear rather than batters with headgear in the near term? Well, you know, when, when Burley says it would have hit him in the face, he's probably the best fielding pitcher there is in the league. So, you know, that you sort of have to really, you know, listen when, when, when someone like Mark Burley makes a comment like that. Well, with Happ and Cobb, I mean, if it's going to hit you, in the, I mean, are you going to wear a shield? I mean, a helmet's one thing, but these guys were hit in the face. Same with Jason Hayward. That implies that you're going to want to have some kind of a shield or a face guard there. Now, as a batter, is that going to impact your vision at all? Uh, as a pitcher? I suppose a pitcher is just going to take getting used to, um, you know, as long as you can focus in on the target and that sort of thing. I can see a, I can see a, a hat, a helmet lined in the hat like like Bob Montgomery used to wear with the Red Sox. He didn't, he didn't wear a helmet, but he, the skull he had a hat lined with the plastic inside. I could see that, but I don't know if they're going to ever, you know, move to having either a face guard or a face shield in front of their face. Um, it's going to, I mean, not to, I mean, the fact that it'll impersonalize the game isn't a reason not to keep players safe, but, uh, you know, that'll be one of the, one of the complaints anyway. Um, I don't know. I mean, we say it, you know, it happens few and far between, but, you know, we just mentioned two guys and, you know, there was Brendan McCarthy last year. So if we can name three guys off the top of our heads that were hit in the face with a baseball and a fourth that almost was, maybe there is a problem. I don't know. And you and you know you mentioned Mike Coolbaugh a few minutes ago, not by name, and he's the first base coach who was killed in a minor league game. Right. And all the the league just said you got all base coaches out there have to wear helmets because you have to protect yourself whether you want to or not. And I I just hope that it doesn't take that on a major league field to have pitchers be protected a little bit better. Uh, speaking of protection, though. Uh, just the uh, other week when uh, the Boston Red Sox and the Yankees were playing, Ryan Dempster quite obviously threw pitches at Alex Rodriguez while the Boston Red Sox fans, to their shame, cheered him on. Uh, subsequently, that David Ortiz has now said that wasn't such a cool thing. But what, what was your reaction when, when Dempster did this? It looked like he was deliberately going, out, going after A-Rod. No, a couple things just... You know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm not saying this because I live in Boston, but something tells me it's not just Red Sox fans that would have been cheering. It would have been any team's fans would have been cheering, and it would have been wrong for any team's fans to cheer. I don't want to say to his credit because that puts the wrong spin on it, but at least Dempster didn't throw at his head. You know, not that you can't injure a knee or can't injure an elbow or break a finger, but at least he didn't throw at his head, which to me, I don't know, it takes – makes just a, I don't know, a little bit better, or if you're going to do it, that's the right way to do it. Now, four pitches, though, to get your message across, I don't know. It's just um, the fact that he hurt his team by doing it was the thing that really caught me, was, uh, you know, the, the Sox need every game they can get with Tampa on their heels. I was more uh, frustrated as a fan that that's just going to put the entire team on edge facing CC Sabathia the rest of the game, and that's already difficult enough of a task. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And, Todd, we're into the stretch run now in Major League Baseball and in fantasy leagues. And now 
the next big thing that's going to happen that could affect both sets of races is September call-ups. How can a fantasy owner benefit, do you think, from observing, monitoring that huge raft of minor leaguers coming up to the big leagues? Well, it's more at bats. You know, player, you know, for everybody that comes up, that means someone else is not going to be playing. And if you happen to have one of those players on your team, then you're going to need to replace them. And, you know, this is the pool of players to choose. Um, I think that, you know, especially, you know, pitchers as well. And the other, the other sort of end of it is teams, teams themselves are weaker. There's a reason why up until a few years ago, the majority of no hitters were in April and September because the, the, the quality of, of teams in September is a little bit less than, than normal. Um, you got to pay attention to the waiver wire. If you need it, bats, got to go for them. You know, we've talked that you can still lose points in batting average, but that's only one category. If you're going to get a guy to help you in, in four other counting stats, sometimes take the hit in batting average. And, you know, at bats are currency, especially in deep leagues. And especially because, quite frankly, everybody might not be paying attention. So you may have less of a, less of a, a rush to get these minor leaguers at the deadline. On the other hand, some keeper leagues, this is the time that people may be looking to pick up a, a gem, depending on upon your free agent rules. So, you know, you may have to be even quicker to the to the punch. It's, it's all league dependent. Before I let you go, Todd, Starlin Castro, I don't, I don't know what you think of this guy. He came into the year, one of the top picks as a shortstop in, in most drafts, pretty near the top anyway, and he's been terrible all year. He's striking out more, he's walking less, and he's, after being like a 300 hitter with 15 or so home runs, 25 or so stolen bases, he's hitting 240, and he's going to be lucky to get over 10 in either home runs or stolen bases. What's going on with Starlin Castro, and what do you think it means for his value in 2014? We numbers guy, you know, we, we poo-poo when we hear scouts and other people talk about a player's makeup. You know, the sort of, you know, the white elephant with uh with with Castro is, you know, there has been mumblings that he's not the most coachable guy, that he's not the most mature guy. He's been benched for not running plays out or for getting the number of outs like he did the other game, things like that. Um, you know, how, how much do we take that into consideration? Is this just one isolated case? Can we name five other immature players that, you know, this is just, you know, random and it's really not because he's, you know, this is just a random poor season and it's not because of his attitude. Um, you know, when we do projections next year, you know, 2013 is going to be factored in. And if we use a weighted average, it's going to hold the, the greatest weight in his numbers. So his expectations will just be tempered just, you know, naturally because of the numbers. Um, I have to think about it a little bit. I think we all have a, an aging an aging component to projections. And maybe I decide if I'm in a bad mood that day to, to manually override the aging component so he doesn't get the little bit of a boost over the weighted average due to his due to the fact that he'll be 24 and he should be in a growth period maybe i don't feel he won't be deserving of that you know as far as you know picking him next year uh it's just he could be the he could be a bounce you know he can be uh what what gene mccaffrey calls you know last you know yet last year's bums if you don't believe in the head game if you don't believe in the mental aspect of it and it's just a bad year you know he could be an underpriced an underpriced player due for a bounce back. Uh, it's going to be, you know, I, I'm not going to target him, but there will be a discount out there that I will 
be happy to put Starlin Castro on my team. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Todd. We'll catch up with you again next week. All right, Patrick. Have a good one. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, MastersBall.com, KFFL.com, and ESPN.com. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Time now for our regular Friday edition look at some pitchers and their opponents this coming week. Remember, our Baseball HQ matchup ratings run from plus 5, which is a must start, to minus 5, which is a must sit. Now looking at Dan Heron against the Royals, Chris Capuano hosting Boston, and others, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. Seemingly left for dead by fantasy owners after he posted his 6.15 ERA through June, Dan Heron has surged in the second half with a 2.16 ERA since July 1st. He hasn't given up more than two runs in an outing in over a month. Despite the bad start and recent surge, Heron's underlying skills have been steady all year. He's actually put up BPVs over 100 and strikeout-to-walk rates over 4 in every single month this season, which is pretty impressive. Now, Heron does only get a 0.81 matchup rating from BaseballHQ.com starting pitching report for Sunday, so shallow league owners might have some better options, but Heron looks like a fine play given his recent surge. Anibal Sanchez is a great option as well against the A's as he appears to be all the way back from a shoulder injury he sustained in June. He suffered a bit in his first few outings back from the DL, but he's been ace-like lately with a 4.2 command rate. 324 expected ERA and a 48% ground ball rate over his last six outings. Being a Tiger certainly has its benefits as well, as he should get plenty of run support, so all systems are go for Sanchez in his 216 matchup rating on Monday against the A's. A bit of bad news, though, for Jeremy Hellickson. His season's literally falling apart in August. He's been one of the lowlights in Tampa Bay's recent surge. Hellickson has an ERA of 8 in August with a whip near 2 and some pretty bad underlying skills to boot, highlighted by a 4.5 strikeouts per 9 and negative 4 BPV this month. Hellickson faces the Royals on Monday with a .5 matchup rating, but to be honest, it doesn't really matter what lineup he's facing right now. He should be on reserve in all formats until he puts up, puts up a couple good outings down the stretch. And finally, Chris Capuano. He's been about as inconsistent as a starter could be this year. All but one of his starts this season have either been dominant or disastrous, according to BaseballHQ.com's pure quality start metric. The ups and downs certainly haven't been helpful in head-to-head leagues, but Capuano's strikeouts have been down lately with just a 5.1K per nine over his last six outings, with a 440 expected ERA over that time. He'll get a tough Boston lineup this time around, and he's slated to go against Jake Peavy. If he keeps the dominant or disaster trend alive, I'd have to go with disaster here. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Hey, listen, if you play any kind of league format where you have to do pitcher matchups or pitcher streaming, you got to be paying attention to Ryan Bloomfield, Troy Martell, and Brian Brickley's comprehensive starting pitcher matchup reports because they come out every day at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for August 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 38 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our regular Friday correspondent, Todd Zola, of course, as well as our HQ matchups commentator, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
I'd like to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>